this week on Making Contact. To be white is to be a striver, a crusader, an explorer, and a conqueror. Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! Have you noticed how menacing rallies like this are getting a lot of media attention lately? The enthusiastic speaker you just heard is Richard Spencer, one of the promising young leaders of what he has dubbed the alt-right movement. This new generation of the extreme right wing often wear nice suits or khakis rather than military garb. But their commitment to white nationalism is clear in their Nazi salutes and their visceral anger toward people on the political left. It's not just that they are leftist and cucks. It's not just that many are genuinely stupid. Indeed, one wonders if these people are people at all. (laughs) Or instead, soulless golem animated by some dark power to repeat whatever talking point John Oliver stated the night before. This is pretty awful rhetoric, and I should warn you there's more like it in this program as we explore this topic. White supremacy is, of course, a long-standing political ideology in the United States. I found out just how embedded this belief remains when I made a documentary film about the pseudoscience that it's based on. Racism, of course, the false notion that there are separate races of humans and that they exist in this convenient natural hierarchy, but also genetic determinism, the belief that biology ultimately determines where we end up in society. After more than 15 years of research into this world, what bothers me is how little attention is being paid to the sources of propaganda that feed the ideology of white supremacy. And I'm not talking about Fox News. I'm talking about a century of unscientific claims from social scientists, psychologists, anthropologists, some respected, others not as much, that are still trotted out by white supremacists when they claim to have science on their side. When we take a look at who's funded most of this research, we see how false science can easily be used to serve dangerous political agendas and ideologies. This is the pseudoscience of whiteness biology as a social weapon. I'm Stephanie Welch, your host on this special edition of Making Contact. For a century or more, scholars have known that the differences among people in intelligence is largely inherited. Genetics is influenced, the extent to which people participate extensively in crime. That's the late James Q. Wilson, the political scientist best known for his so-called broken windows theory of crime, which led to discriminatory stop and frisk policies. He also received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from George W. Bush. And having perfected at low cost a means for individual genomic analysis, we will be able to say what aspect of a given person is genetic and what aspects are environmentally determined. Why do black people in America, on average, score 15 or more points lower than whites? Is it genetic? Is it environment? We concluded with the view that it was 80% genetic. 
Dysgenic immigration of Hispanics in particular, and but also of other peoples with low IQs, will clearly have an effect of reducing the intelligence of the host populations that have to absorb these people. That was psychologist Richard Lynn and his colleague Philippe Rushton before him. Unscientific work like theirs is always welcome to people who are looking for ways to rationalize inequality and injustice towards people of color. What's striking, though, is that this kind of research has been financed primarily by a single funding source established back in the 1930s, the notorious Pioneer Fund. Joseph Levin is co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center. They fight legal battles to advance human rights, and they also monitor hate groups. Some of the profiles include grant recipients of the Pioneer Fund, such as the people involved with the white supremacist American Renaissance magazine. They try to present themselves as uh, scholars and intellectuals, and they argue that black people, Latinos, are pathologically predisposed toward crime and other kinds of behaviors that they're genetically inferior and they're not capable of establishing a uh, civilized uh, society. And that basically, if they were to have a significant role in our society or any other society, that it would collapse. That's their view. They're not actually using science. They purport to use science to try and prove this. It's eugenics. Uh, The whole notion of eugenics has been with us for hundreds of years in this country and other countries, uh, the Nazis loved it. It's something that we've had to deal with for all this time and it's uh, far from gone. Eugenics was an idea that became deeply embedded in American culture at the turn of the 20th century, about the time that the belief in genes took hold. Scientists had no proof that there were such things as genes, But by 1913, the New York Times was already printing headlines like, social problems have proven basis in heredity, claiming that everything from poverty to alcoholism and crime could be explained biologically rather than being a result of conditions in society. It was pretty convenient, being that this was during the so-called Gilded Age, the last time economic and social inequality was almost as bad as it is today. Basically, the theory said, you are where you are because of your genes, So stop complaining. Eugenics took it to the next level. The only real way to improve society is to improve the genetic quality of the population. This is exactly what the founder of the Pioneer Fund, Wycliffe Draper, had in mind when he established the organization in 1937. Draper inherited a fortune from his father and committed much of that money to research and implementation of eugenics. He invited Harry Laughlin to serve as president. Laughlin was a biologist at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York and was key in launching the eugenics movement. Laughlin was selected to be the very first president of the Pioneer Fund, largely because the two men shared these obsessions with uh, both racial purity and the desire to cleanse the United States of both blacks and Jews. That's William Tucker, professor emeritus of psychology at Rutgers University. In his book, The Funding of Scientific Racism, Tucker explores the full history of the Pioneer Fund and how it all began with a partnership between Wycliffe Draper and Harry Laughlin. And these were two people who were 
This is the 30s. They were Nazi sympathizers. And for the rest of the time, many of the people involved in Pioneer had these Nazi connections as well. And the word Nazi is so overused today for everybody that the speaker happens to disagree with that it's lost its impact when it's really appropriate. And it's really appropriate here. I mean, I want to emphasize, we're talking about real Nazis. These are people who are Hitlerites. They followed the Third Reich. You know, they would like to establish in the United States a Fourth Reich. You know, these, these are true Nazis. The Nazi government was enthusiastic about Laughlin's work as well. They gave him an award for the program he designed to forcibly sterilize people who he viewed as defectives with bad genes. His model sterilization law was sanctioned by our own Supreme Court in 1927. Laughlin even wanted to sterilize family members who might be carrying recessive genes for certain traits. Of course, feeble-minded were near the top of the list, but in addition, there were criminals, alcoholics, epileptics, people who suffered from various disabilities, the deaf, the blind, and, and a number of other categories, the poverty-stricken also. His plans actually called for tens of millions of people to be sterilized over a long period of time. Uh, the laws were passed in 34 states, but somewhere only between 70 and 80,000 people were sterilized, so I guess he thought of it as partially successful. Draper was a big supporter of forced sterilization as a way to implement eugenics. He also shared Laughlin's other eugenic goal, to close the borders to immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, many of whom were Jewish. Laughlin testified before Congress as they considered passage of the Draconian Immigration Act of 1924. The people who were opposed to this immigration were old-fashioned Nordicists who believed that the Alpine and Mediterranean populations, as they were referred to at that time, were just inferior to the original stocks that settled this country, that is, the people who had come from Northwestern Europe. And the supposed science of eugenics now provided an intellectual underpinning for these prejudicial opinions. And a number of scientists testified before the hearings of the immigration legislation, which led to the passage of the 1924 law. Laughlin's testimony was key. Years later, when Jewish refugees who had managed to escape the Nazis asked to enter the country, Laughlin helped to convince Congress to turn them away. Many ended up killed in the Holocaust as a result. After World War II, when it was clear where the belief in eugenics could lead, the movement got a bad name. But Wycliffe Draper wasn't dissuaded by this shift in public opinion. In the 1950s and 60s, Draper took up a new cause, to stop the civil rights movement and resist desegregation. He looked for partners who could help him make that happen and discovered a fellow Northerner who was as determined as he was. Carlton Putnam was a well-known businessman and a member of what Nicholas Lehman calls the Episcopacy, that is, the kind of old guard that really were the ruling class in the United States at one time. Putnam himself was an airline executive who was one of the founders of a company that later merged with Delta. But at a particular point in his life, he suddenly decided 
that opposition to the civil rights movement was his calling, and this was the project that he pursued for the rest of his life. The Pioneer Fund financed the publication of Carlton Putnam's book, Race and Reason, A Yankee View, which became required reading for Mississippi high school students. The Mississippi governor even declared October 26, 1961, as Race and Reason Day and invited Carlton Putnam to deliver a speech. Now, citizens of Mississippi, we have in the North a great body of public opinion hypnotized by the belief that all the Negro's limitations are environmental, that the only reason he does not appear to be the white man's equal in every respect is because the white man has forced him into an inferior environment, has held him back, as they say. Once you accept that idea, it follows logically that white men ought in justice and morality to take every possible step by way of restitution to correct the environment even at the expense of disadvantage to themselves. On that indoctrination, the integration movement rests. It gives it all the sanctions of a moral crusade. It makes it shine like the Holy Grail. And what's the South doing about it? It's talking almost exclusively about states' rights. Initially, the Southern opposition to civil rights was based on what they claimed were constitutional arguments, that is, that uh, states' rights took precedence over the Supreme Court's decision. But over a period of time, a number of the strategists who opposed the civil rights movement decided that that was a losing position. It was scientific evidence that they hoped would win the day, and the opposition to the civil rights movement was thus led for a period of time by some very well-known scientists in the field. Although Putnam was not himself a scientist, he claimed to be speaking on behalf of a large group of scientists who he said were being muzzled, who were unable to speak out. And Putnam was one of the few individuals who introduced the theme in public that many of these segregationist scientists believed in private, and that is that the movement for racial equality was merely the surface problem, that the underlying problem was Jewish control of the United States, of media and the government, and the Jews were using the civil rights movement in an attempt to weaken the United States and make it easier for themselves, for Jews, to take control. These scientists joined Putnam, Draper, and Wall Street lawyers in efforts to overturn the Brown v. Board Supreme Court decision on desegregation. They launched a massive propaganda campaign distributing racist, pseudoscientific literature across the country. Draper secretly funded most of these efforts out of his own pocket. Overall, their lobbying effort posed a serious challenge to President Lyndon Johnson. The Washington Post called it the best organized and best financed lobby up to that time, far outspending any other group attempting to influence legislation. In the end, of course, they failed. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, and the Supreme Court rejected their arguments against integration. But Draper always had many funding irons in the fire. Draper was pleasantly surprised when a controversy arose in the news about William Shockley, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist who had launched a PR campaign promoting eugenics. 
On the show Firing Line, Shockley explained his plan in detail to conservative William F. Buckley, a critic of eugenics. I have this uh, voluntary sterilization bonus plan, and the way it goes is a bonus would be offered to everyone to be sterilized. Mm -hmm. The amount of the bonus would be uh, dependent on various factors. For example, income taxpayers would be offered no bonus. For all others, regardless of sex, race, or welfare status, the bonus would depend upon best scientific estimates of any genetically carried disabilities, such as arthritis, hemophilia, Huntington's chorea, and if there is a genetic uh, predisposal to heroin addiction, this should get a big bonus. Furthermore, at $1,000 for every point you score below 100 on an IQ test, $30,000 put into a trust fund for a 70 IQ moron capable of producing 20 children might very well be economically advantageous to taxpayers in terms of about $300,000 in reduced uh, costs of mental retardation care. Well, that's a very he, simple he, calculation. I'll tell you something that would be even more economically <clears throat> advantageous would be to kill them. Well, that, you see, we uh, that disagrees with my fundamental principles on this. Yes, Shockley opposed the Great Society programs and the war on poverty because he believed that they were making the conditions of life easier for those defective individuals that would only allow them to have the kind of children that would burden the next generation. Thus, this subsequent decline in the ability of the population would produce what he called evolution in reverse. He became a hero to the same people who had opposed the civil rights movement. So Shockley suddenly found himself the recipient of substantial amounts of money from Wycliffe Preston Draper. Draper knew that the Supreme Court ruling on sterilization from 1927 was still in effect and hoped the practice could be revived. He funded Shockley's PR campaign and supported politicians who wanted to require women receiving financial assistance to be sterilized. Draper also invested funds in North Carolina the state had a so-called eugenics board that worked directly with the welfare department and allowed social workers to suggest clients they believed should be sterilized. My name is Elaine Riddick. I am a victim of eugenics. Elaine Riddick Jesse was one of 3,000 children between the ages of 10 and 19 who were forcibly sterilized by the state of North Carolina. It happened to her in 1968. I didn't find out that I had been sterilized until I turned 19. I was a victim of rape. I was molested when I was 13 years old. And the guy that raped me told me if I told anybody that he was gonna kill me. So finally, the social worker found out that I was pregnant and she approached my grandmother and told her that if she didn't sign for me to become sterilized, that they were going to stop her food supplements. Like many people in rural North Carolina in the 50s and 60s, Elaine grew up in extreme poverty. Her fate was in the hands of a state built on a system of segregation and Jim Crow laws, that helped to maintain cheap labor for the state's agricultural economy. The State Eugenics Board was intent on controlling the population, and research shows they directly targeted African Americans. The Eugenics Board was a board of five men that sat around a table, and of course they were white men too. They sat around a table and they just marked the paper. Anybody that the social worker would deem feeble-minded or 
slow or having a problem, this social worker will come in and say, I want this person sterilized. And boom, they stamped it and that was that. The Eugenics Board received an evaluation from the social worker who insisted that there was no hope for Elaine, that she got along poorly with other children, and that an IQ test showed that she was feeble-minded. The board completely ignored another evaluation they received by a psychologist who said Elaine's chief problem was her environment. She was doing above-average work in school, and any difficulty she had getting along with others was likely due to the fact that she was always being bullied by other students and was generally hungry. So instead of them doing what they're supposed to do, it was like they put the blame on me. I had my son and I woke up in bandages, not knowing what it was for. They went inside of me and sterilized me without my knowledge because I was black, poor, and my mother was in a prison. My dad was running around. He was an alcoholic. My mother was an alcoholic. So they automatically assumed that I was going to become an alcoholic. And then without even my son as a baby, automatically assuming that he was the third generation and that he was going to be an alcoholic also. What they wanted to do was nip it in the bud right then. Stop this family tree. They want to cut the tree down. And I want to know who in the world give these people the right to go and do these sort of things to another human being. At the time North Carolina was carrying out the sterilization campaign, Joseph Levin was a young lawyer working with the Southern Poverty Law Center. In a landmark case, he represented two young girls in Alabama who were secretly operated on in a federally funded clinic. At no time prior to the surgery did any physician discuss with the girls or their parents the nature or consequences of the surgery to which Minnie and Mary Alice were about to be subjected. The girls were released from the hospital after three days. We came to learn that maybe there were as many as 500 of these clinics functioning throughout the United States. And it was sort of up to the nurses and the doctors as to who got what. And they made their judgment about who was worthy and who wasn't. It almost sounded as if we were talking about some Nazi-era plan. It really was a practice of eugenics because these clinics didn't see anything wrong with controlling the birth rate of people who they viewed as a burden on society. That simple. During the case, Levin learned that in the second wave of sterilizations, between 400,000 and a million poor women were sterilized in these clinics over the course of about six years. What isn't clear is how many provided their true informed consent. The district judge even said that an indefinite number were coerced into operations for fear of losing benefits. Levin's lawsuit helped stop these practices, and sterilization survivors are finally being heard, thanks to Elaine Riddick Jesse and other strong advocates. Recent reports make it clear, though, that women remain targets for this human rights abuse. U.S. Immigration and Customs and Enforcement declines to comment on allegations that hysterectomies were performed on detained immigrant women without their full consent. Over four years, female inmates in California were illegally sterilized without the required approval from the state. Meanwhile, it's unclear where the Pioneer Fund is currently putting its money. Their leadership has changed many times since Draper's death in 1972. 
The most recent funding reports show a focus on anti-immigrant organizations, which they've been funding for years. Their main investment has been in FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform. And FAIR has a legal arm, the Institute for Immigration Reform Law. And the person who is of counsel to that is Chris Kobach. And Chris Kobach was the primary author of the anti-immigrant laws uh, in a number of states, including Arizona, Alabama, and Pennsylvania, some of the most stringent uh, immigrant laws in the country. Kobach was also the advisor on immigration policy to the 2012 Romney campaign. Chris Kobach is still active in ultra-conservative circles. He led efforts to illegally remove hundreds of thousands of people from voting rolls, advised Donald Trump on his failed 2020 campaign, and backed the claim that the election was fraudulent. As a result, of course, a number of extreme groups came together to storm the Capitol in January of 2021 in defense of Trump. If Wycliffe Draper was still alive, he'd probably feel that his efforts paid off. He would see a growing number of white supremacist groups, some rather sophisticated, refining their strategies, recruiting young people on campuses, using the internet for talk shows, comedy bits, and podcasts. He'd also see women moving into the spotlight, like host Lana Lochtef. There was no USA before Europeans, let alone the concept of legally protected land. There wasn't even a light bulb before us. Anti-whites don't know or care about truth and facts. All they want is to steal what Europeans built. They're petty tyrants who want what they could not build themselves, and they use Marxist lies to try and guilt white people into giving away their stuff. Draper would surely support young people in the alt-right movement who are advocating for a separate, so-called white ethno-state, where they can be free from the diversity reflected in the current U.S. population. Activist Nathan D'Amigo explained this on the Young Turks program. There are things that we can enjoy and that we can experience uh, from other people. However, you know, there is this other side in which there is this, this feeling of isolation for many people, and in some cases alienation, and just this disconnected uh, feeling. If you are trying to you know, replace an entire race of people, there does come a point where it is the moral imperative of those people to say, hey, we have rights, we have the right to an existence, and we have right to a space of our own, a, a space where we can be safe and where we can be us. People coalesce around, they're looking for family. That's, that's my whole theory, for some meaning to their lives. And this gives them something that they otherwise wouldn't have. This issue never seems to go away, particularly when you, when you see tough economic times and people tend to gravitate toward issues like this. They look for someone to blame and they get angry. And so then they look to socioeconomic groups that are there and all of a sudden it becomes racist or it's illegal immigrants. We're in the kind of climate now that feeds that. It's just that you would hope in a democracy like ours that saner heads will prevail, that you keep all of those ingredients that are important. Voting rights, demographics of different kinds of people. I mean, that's what we are in this country, and, and we, we have to make sure that we don't destroy that, because I, I always think it's possible. I mean, we could definitely end up in some kind of a governmental environment that isn't really a democracy anymore. 
those are the kinds of things I think about. And that happens when you get extremists taking over anything. You've been listening to the Pseudoscience of Whiteness, Biology as a Social Weapon, on Making Contact. This show was written and produced by Stephanie Welch. You can find out how to watch my documentary, A Dangerous Idea, Eugenics, Genetics, and the American Dream, by going to radioproject.org. That's radioproject.org. Thanks to our editor, Monica Lopez. Also to our engineer and music supervisor, Emily Harris. Thanks also to the rest of the Making Contact team. Executive Director, Sonia Green. Staff Producers, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, and Salima Hamarani. Web and social media updates, Sabine Blazin. Special thanks to Jonathan Zalbin for the use of his music. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions and Maiden. And thanks for listening to Making Contact.